Dotnet Rocks episode 608 with guests Scott Stanfield, Stephen Forte, and Lino Tadros. Recorded live Monday, October 18th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Hey, Bulgaria! Welcome to .NET Rocks! Wow. That's a lot of noise for seven people. Yeah, it's a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> It's all good, man. Welcome yeah. back to DevReach. Yeah. Welcome we, to Bulgaria. And we're in this movie theater, but it's a great venue. How big do you think this screen is? Does anybody know how big this is? That is a big is? screen. What is that, 20 feet high? That's 1,000 feet. That's, how much? That's, yeah. Steve Evans' head never looked bigger. <laughs> so we've, had, we've got the website up. I'm, what's the resolution of that? I mean, I is that just like your standard high-def resolution? I think that's like 1920 by, by 1080. At least. That's, that's the whole screen. It's enormous, 20 feet high. It's awesome. Well, anyway. Okay. We are here with a group of uh, unruly guests. All previous guests on .NET Rocks. All previous guests, all unruly. Uh, Mr. Scott Stanfield. Hello, hello. Who uh, people delight in putting an S in your name for some reason. Lots of S's. Stansfields. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But you are really Scott Stanfield. That's right. From Vertigo Software. Still. Mr. Stephen Forte. Without the Britney Spears microphone. No, that's too bad. Very jealous of Mr. Stanfield. And uh, you sound a little muddy today. You got a cold? I think I caught Scott's cold. Yeah. We had had a lot of fun last night. (laughs) Uh, I think more more than we needed to know. And, And Mr. Lino Tadros. Hello, hello. Hey, welcome back. Whose bags are lost. Yes. That's nice, because he flew through Paris, you silly man. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> and he's wearing rented underwear. Uh, so, <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Ask me how. You're welcome. <laughs> well, anyway, we are going to talk about... Uh, oh, Scott, you did a, a keynote here this morning. Surprisingly. Yeah, on the user experience. How was the keynote for you guys? Did you like it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And uh, I thought... I heard a no. Yeah, was there a no? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were just shaking their head. That means yes. You had five pillars in your keynote there, Mr. Stanfield. Oh, you no. want to speak to your pillars? I have to iterate them. So the setup was, I'm trying to think, how can I warn the developers of today of the, the things they need to know to play nice with designers? Okay. And I thought there were going to be some simple th- now I'm gone. He's mad at me. <laughs> That'll learn, yeah. I thought there were going to be some That's simple things. That's using a Britney Spears microphone. <laughs> I, I know. Okay, let me, I'm going to refer to my notes. I, I, I think I remember. Because that. it was so memorable. I can I tell you what I learned in the keynote. I the amount of content in this show is going to be stunning. <laughs> I know. I learned that my shower doesn't turn all the way to the left if I press the button. That's, you, you could have had a lot hotter shower this morning. <laughs> than you realized. So there, there were five things I talked about. Uh, the idea with, if, looking at these five pillars, industrial design, usability, typography, natural user interface, and motion graphics. Right. Software is better if we have an appreciation for these things. And you, or one can just observe the world and ask why is something designed the way it is and start to go down different paths. And the reference points being the movies like Objectified and Helvetica right. or just looking at how your shower 
works and why and, it and works he, the way. For those who did not see this keynote, he had taken photographs of his shower in the hotel. This morning. As, uh, as an example, fully clothed, which we all appreciated, uh, uh, to show as an example of good industrial design and, mm. and equate that back to software, that these knobs were very clear as to what they did and why they did it yeah. and had which yeah. is, protections. Which is great when you're jet-lagged and have to get up for a keynote very early. Great. I appreciated a very clean design. Like, I find bad design is... Uh, is Everywhere, and uh, I think um, it's especially been uh, the Microsoft camp that you know building battleship gray business apps for so long that just finds it very difficult to to live in a design world, and even even websites and the the worst were in early ASP days. But um, you know, it took a while for for websites to to you know for people for developers to to just figure out how to do basic layout the biggest problem i have when i go to a website is it doesn't answer the question what is this you know what is it do what is this What's that's a simple question that should be answered kind of knowing your audience would be helpful yeah uh, but it is like we leave the our the front door open to our applications in the web and you can find people using your stuff not even really knowing what's for yeah well, and in, and in, so not just in website design, but in application design, the uh, it should be obvious what it is and what you should do, what knobs you should turn to make it work. Yeah, this sounds extremely esoteric. Really, my whole motivation for this is I just get I get cranky about poorly designed software, and yeah. it's like I'm a my background is computer science. You know, I've, I've actually written code that people paid for, God help them, and. Um, and I just realized that we could be doing a better job. Now, we don't have to be the ones that design it. I'm not saying that. I just mean we will do a better job if we understand what designers care about. And we care about RAM and hard disk speed and entity frameworks and design patterns. And designers care about different things. But they're just as passionate about that as developers are about their, their, um, their code. And you have as many designers at Vertigo as you have developers now? It's roughly, it's varies from from one to two and two to one ratio. Has it always been like that? No, no. It's uh, We started with just just developers and we had a hard time selling the, the value proposition of design. And the thing that has helped us most sell design was something we had nothing to do with and that was the iPhone. And I would also say maybe the Xbox and the latest version of Office with a ribbon. Mm-hmm. Because those three different technologies I think were the first time um, that advanced a well thought out advanced user interface was exposed to the business customer, especially the iPhone. It's like, look, this thing is amazing, and it really represented a bit of of the future. And I can touch it now, but why am I still using SAP? Or my applications look like what Battleship Gray. And so Battleship really, Gray is in a step up. It surely should be green screen for SAP. Yeah, yeah that's, mm. that's true. So, uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't know if it's equal, but it's probably close. Lino, is it the same thing for you now? Because Falafel's been in business for a long, long time. Do you, have you always had designers, or is that a recent advent? We had designers, but now we have more and more designers. And I think the, the thing that, that will probably mean a lot to everybody in the room here today and listening to us today is that you go to a company and they ask you to do a job. They're like, well, we don't know design, we're programmers, but we would like you to come up with a great design. So we put a designer on it for a couple of weeks, and then when you go back, oh, this is great, but can you change a little bit? We want the tree view on the left side, we want this to be red, and we want, 
And then they go back, they are paying people to do the design. And after they paid the money and we come up with the design, people always want to put their developer hand in it. Like, yeah, that's not what I said. Well, right. there is a reason why you didn't expect it because you're not good at it. Mm -hmm. But they're always like, yeah, as long as it's review on the left and it's green and red here and there's stuff on the right, everything else is up to you, really. Look, you already said how the whole thing is going to work. So. <laughs> at least with programming, you can hide in the source code and your customers won't get in your business. But with design, everybody has an opinion. Yeah, it's maddening. Well, and as a developer, how angry have we gotten when someone said, I really like this project, but you have to write the whole thing in Visual Basic, or you have to write the whole thing in C Sharp. Or it's right. your tab stop should be converted to hard spaces. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have our peccadillos. Steve, does this make you mad, or are you just amused? No, actually, I, I want to add to this conversation with design, as I think, you know, at Telerik, you know, I, I actually think the whole sole purpose why we were founded and put in business and were put on the map is because we make it easy for people to style the controls with that where it's hard to do with the intrinsic controls that come out of the box in Microsoft. And if, if that's our competitive advantage, I think that's actually what put us on the map. So developers designing. So I guess, you know, this is what we're talking about, developers designing. Mark Miller has uh, done a few things about the, the science of good UI. Billy Hollis has proven that a developer can have a sense of aesthetics. Um, is, I mean, you think the majority of software development in, uh, on the .NET stack will always be done design-wise by, by developers? Do you think developers will be doing the majority of the design work? Hope not. Yeah. Um, wow, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I think for more real-world or larger applications, it doesn't need to be that way. I mean, you, yeah. you can start with, we do some of our projects start with sketches. I mean, yeah. literally like just on paper and mm -hmm. scan it into PowerPoint and see how it plays out or whiteboards. It's just at some point you get to tooling and whether or not that involves a creative developer, which is mm -hmm. this new kind of bridge class. Um, and for instance, we, some of our creative devs uh, are really good at bringing a model view view model pattern into blend and using, um, what's the thing, behaviors. Coding right. up behaviors that allow designers to run wild and just do th hook things up, um, but designers using Blend is kind—it's tough. Yeah, right? what whatever happened with that? Uh, I believe that I'm really concerned about that. I think Microsoft made a big bet on the Expression Suite for designers, and realized they're just not coming along. But developers are adopting it. So there's this there's this niche of uh, developers that have an eye for design or can speak the language to help bring the designer's ideas to life very quickly. So how are your designers presenting their designs to you? Oh boy, um, a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways. None and it, of them involving Blend? Um, blend might be the last part. Okay. But I, I, really at this point, they're, it's, I don't care if it's, if it's Illustrator or Crayon. It, 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 whatever gets the, gets the message across quickly, if it means it's a little bit more time to do the assembly and keep it in the digital world and vector world, that's fine. I, I think um, it's more important to get the idea across. Do any of the tools that are out there for designers play nicer with Visual Studio than others? Um, well, I know, for instance, Mike Swanson, DPE, has, has released a couple tools um, on the, the Visit Mix site for export of Illustrator for XAML and Illustrator to Canvas. So hmm. you can glue some of the, the underlying technology together. But again, I, designers don't care as much about their tools, I, I think, as much as developers do. Really? I, mean, I think that? it's important. I think Illustrator, 
having good tools doesn't make you a good designer. It just helps you work faster. So why, why didn't the designers jump to blend then? Um, I think it's a fundamental gut reaction to the Microsoft brand. Honestly, that so not actually the tool itself. If we got the Microsoft label off it and put Adobe on it, be okay. Um, and then I, maybe give I say it a couple. Okay. No, no, and maybe give it a couple of iterations. It was it was early, and yeah. to uh, take away um, some of the type of fine grain typographical control that designers expect in Illustrator, and just the richness of the. I mean, geez, the keyboard shortcuts are burned in mm. to their brains. Just mm. like I still use VI as my text editor. Colin WQ, and mm. you know, I. So I think once you are so imprinted in a pattern, it's hard to get off that. So mm. why fight that? Um, I'm spending a lot of money this month on Creative Suite Five, and it, it hurts, but um, we're going to do it because it's it's more important. The end product's more important, and the process, while great, if we lose a couple days, it's better that the designer and developer. Um, Workflow not at a tools and binary file level, but move the workflow up a notch at a cognitive level with including the customer. Lino, what, what about you? Do you uh, do you have the same experience? We had a little bit different experience. I mean, my designers all like to use Flash. So when a customer mm -hmm. comes and says, "Build this for me," they like to build the whole thing in minutes. If you know, they are really good in Flash for a decade now. And then I found out when they give the flash to the customer and they love it, now somebody else has to take that and go write XAML <laughs> so that right. they can actually do that. Right. So I actually took for the last maybe 18, 20 months um, these designers and we taught them blend. Hmm. And in the beginning, they all threw up. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh no, I love Flash. Flash is great. Yeah. And then little by little, they start seeing how they can do the storyboards and they actually start to like it. And then they looked at the design and was like, oh man, this is very verbose. This is too much content hmm. for the... But it grew on them. And now after a couple of years, most of our designers start immediately from Blend, hmm. Blend 4. Before yeah. that, it was Flash. <laughs> but with yeah. Blend 4, they actually use Blend and they like it. And they are very fast and efficient in it right now. So, Well, good. Uh, they, they like it. That's imagine, a great success story. It would be, blend. Imagine a conversation about design that doesn't involve software. It doesn't involve tools. Hmm. We need to start thinking about that right. instead of saying we start with blend because the, the designers really are starting earlier yeah. as part of a contextual inquiry and working with the clients, understanding the brand, um, sketching ideas. Mm. The more throwaway your ideas are at the beginning, I believe will be the better end product. Like Bill Buxton's philosophy around the book sketching user interfaces. Um, it, yet in the developer space, we live and die by our tools. It's plus a whiteboard. And um, believe me, designers are very adept with whiteboards as well. But put off the tooling bit for a minute because that leads you to a solution that might not be optimal because mm. you're going to follow a path that's constrained by the keyboard shortcuts or what right. Adobe put in the upper left-hand corner of the toolbar. You know, you can stay away from that for a while and think strategically about what you're building versus strategy versus build. That's a bias that we have a build bias at Vertigo. We're all about shipping, but I would like to grow more into a strategic discussion with a customer. But by that same token, you do need to ship this thing. Don't you ever run into situations where designers go off and come up with a design that's very compelling, but basically unbuildable? All the time. Lovely. All the time. And it's very expensive. <laughs> um, and, the, and of course, they've shown this to the customer, too. So yes. the customer wants it, but they don't know how to do it. Yeah. While you're answering that question, I'll tell you, we, that's one of the nice things about Sketchflow, because the lines don't look straight, and then the font is a hand-sketched font, and you do it in black and white, so when you do your prototypes, you put it in front of a customer, they can't, they know this is... Right. Um, they know it's temporary. Yes, exactly. We have a question from the audience there. Hi. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question. Uh, is there a danger from 
new, let's say, programming class that uh, something like a hybrid between a programmer and a designer with these uh, new technologies, uh, including uh, some stuff in .NET, which allows you to have uh, minimal knowledge of, uh, let's say, the low-level programming and uh, algorithms and uh, any kind of hardware knowledge and just uh, program the logic. Um, and is this, is this uh, a danger or a good perspective? I don't think it's a danger at all. I think um, software is already abstracted above you know, transistors and silicon, and there's many levels in between. We're just operating at a higher level. Why not keep going up the stack? If it still results in something that's maintainable, high performant, it meets the, the needs you know, of, of the customer quickly, I'm all for it. Um, I've often thought about that question, and for developers that we hire, you know, they're going to be doing architecture. Yeah, you want to know good found, good sounds like eating your vegetables with technology. You really want to understand some of those problems because then you avoid. You, you've stepped in those pitfalls before, maybe in college. So I still advocate for. Um, you know, I keep going back to some of the things I learned in computer science. But I don't think it's a requirement. The classic pitfall that you're, I think you're alluding to is something that's so high level that you build some black box that nobody understands, and then you hit a wall where you can't change it or you can't adapt it or make it fit or change, you know, morph it into what you need. But uh, with, with the XAML-based designers, um, you just don't have that issue. I think that's actually why XAML was created, WPF right. and Silverlight, right? To address that exact problem is separate the design and the developer. And mm -hmm. tools really don't matter as long as you can produce some XAML and get handed off to the developer. As I was listening to the conversation, I was remembering some early .NET projects. One of the first .NET projects I worked on right when it shipped, we hired a designer and he built stuff in front page. And then we copied and pasted it, you know, into the ASPX or actually just .ASP page or whatever it was at the time. And what I found interesting was it just didn't work. It, we couldn't actually, we had to go and undo because front page added all this metadata that Visual Studio, I guess it was 2002, did not understand. And it was actually a disaster. And we actually had to start pretty much from scratch. And you know, we've come a long way, and that was only eight years ago. We've come a long way from kind of that separation of concerns where you know, you give me some XAML, plop it in, and then in theory the developer will start working against it. We've had a luck, uh, we were talking about this earlier, about using MVVM for the separation of concerns through the model, or I guess the view. So if they check out a TFS project, um, and yes, our designers use team system. Um, just enough to check it out, and they know they can do anything in the view folder for the ones that do use blend. Some of our interaction designers might not go in blend. They're thinking more upfront, um, boxes and arrows kind of things. But um, our graphic designers that are styling uh, would be kind of down in that path as well. And that's where designers can really help by providing controls or templatizing behavior that occurs over and over. Instead of them hand coding it, you can create a behavior that's reusable or controls that are reusable. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. 
One area where Just Code is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features Just Code offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Every once in a while, some technology comes along that changes the fundamentals of design. You were talking about the iPhone before. I, I would just say maybe touch computing in general would, would, be, would be in there. And now, uh, gesture-based user interface is, is sort of hitting everybody like, wow, you know, they're looking at the Microsoft Connect. Connect. I'm looking at it saying, this is a complete game changer. Yeah. I, 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 can't, I can't see software being written the same way after it, this. It's going to be different. We, we did some voice. We, we had, Microsoft had a voice server mm. at one point. Yeah, we had to create, speech server. Yeah, speech server. And we had to create a grammar to understand spoken language and put parameters in. And it's really, really hard. Yeah, I've done a bit of work on that myself. And I think the same thing is going to occur around right. not only touch, it's just simply being a mouse, the uh, an equivalent of a mouse click up to gestures, which is like the higher level. It's like going from, from an alphabet to words. Right. Um, but you can do that now in HTML5. And there's some jQuery libraries to help abstract that to make it work. But you're right, going to full, where you have a depth of field with connect, it's going to be amazing. The problem with Connect, though, it's it's like an it's part of the consumer goods section right. of Microsoft. It won't have, as far as I know, a business model or a partnership model that allow us to crack it open and do well. Not things. not immediately, but you can see this is so. where things are it, going. It is a USB device, after all. Yeah. Well, yes, but right. but it's proprietary. Yeah. It I won't. hope it opens up. Yeah. That would be amazing. They 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 have a special uh, a special USB connector. Really? Yeah, oh, that's great. Thanks, Thanks that. Microsoft. But just only two years ago, laptops didn't come standard with a webcam. Now every yeah. laptop has yeah. a little web, you know, HD webcam like mm-hmm. built in mm-hmm. that's you know two centimeters thick. Mm. So you know, fast forward two or three years when the hardware will support and you don't need the, the special proprietary cameras. That technology hopefully will get cracked open. Well, yeah, and and maybe it's not connect, but the technology is there. The cat's out of the bag. Right. Now you can talk and gesture to your computer and you're interacting with it. I mean, we're getting one step closer to the minority report. Yeah, for better or worse. But, you know, speaking about technologies like that, like Surface had a big head start on this touch computing model and it being trapped in that $15,000 form factor. Mm The way you used your iPad this past couple of days, I've seen you enact in the keynote and so forth, felt very Surface-like. Yeah, that's right. Um, it doesn't have object recognition like a Surface does, right. but the yeah. iPad is a benefit of being a bit more affordable and portable. Yeah. Um, the thing about so this is glass, and there's some kind of oil. Um, it actually attracts oil to help protect and lubricate, move the screen around. But the the, the surface of the surface itself, if you haven't touched one, it's amazing. Yeah. It's really nice. It's not like like walk outside and put your fingers on a pane of window glass and then move it around. It yeah. hurts. Yeah. Right. It's not what you want. But right. the surface, there's so much to a surface. Um, but that, it's just not, it, it, it doesn't have this commercial it's success. Just the form factor seems to have completely impaired the potential right. of this thing. But right. the difference, let me add, I'm sorry, one Go thing. Um, the iPad is a very personal device. Mm-hmm. And maybe with two people to share content. But the surface is a multi-person collaborative device. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very different multi-user, multi-touch 
Whereas the Surface, I mean, uh, the I, iPad, I think it's, I know you get two points, maybe more, but I never use more than, no, it actually has multiple, multiple touches being a capacitive device. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it, yeah, that idea of people sitting around a screen yeah. is an interesting metaphor of software in general. But look at beyond just the fact that we interact with, with our fingers. I, th I would argue that the fact that the devices are so different gives us more diversity around um, just different applications that wouldn't normally exist. I mean, a lot of people said, well, the iPad is just a bigger iPhone. Yeah, what's wrong with that? I have, <laughs> yeah. I have both, and I use them in very different ways. Yeah. And then I still have a laptop, and I have... You know, we, so there's, it's going to be like we started with just one animal and now we're slowly morphing into more general uh, special purpose devices. The only problem with having an iPhone and an iPad is if you play Angry Birds on both, <laughs> you have to repeat levels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was more of a plants and zombies guy. Okay. Uh. I think Microsoft Live Mesh will help that. <laughs> the only one that has a job here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that brought the conversation screeching home. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Must have been the plants and zombies, I think. That's, yeah. That's, that's Feeling like a zombie. Lino, Lino, what are you guys thinking in terms of the next user interfaces? And uh, Do your customers come to you and say, we want an application that we can just talk to or just touch or, or gesture to? Is anybody in business thinking about that right now? Yeah, actually, a lot of people have spent a lot of money in the last few years on enterprise applications, um, and now they see how mobile is going for the next few years is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. So it's not we don't get somebody who's saying like the only thing I want you to do is mobile for me. They say yeah. like we have already this investment, multi million dollar investment in a server light WPF, wind for whatever it was that we build the application for, mm -hmm. and can we take a piece of this application and make it available? Not the whole application, just a piece of it, like the charting, for instance. Nobody wants to put grids and stuff like that on a, on a mobile device. Yeah. They mm -hmm. want to just the manager to be able to show something over dinner to somebody live data from SQL Server, for instance. Can can you do that? And the idea is that, yes, and now they have to make a decision which device they're going to go to. Do, are we going to use Windows Phone 7, iPhone, Android? Mm. And I said that actually in my launch for Windows Phone 7 at Microsoft last week, is that I don't think this is an or. This is going to be an and. Mm -hmm. This is You don't have a choice. Really, you cannot make that choice for your customers. You're going to have mm -hmm. to pick one to start with, but the second one needs to come within months or a quarter. Mm -hmm. And the third one, whoever is going to win the third, whether it's Windows Phone 7 or yeah. BlackBerry or whatever, but hopefully Windows Phone 7 would be the third for right now. I mean, so what do we do about that? Wow. Well, I don't think we can do anything. Actually, I don't think we should actually choose for the customer. Um, you're going to have to choose which one you're going to go for first. So people say, like, iPhone has been very, very successful. Let's start with that. And then Android has been selling better than iPhone in the last quarter. So let's go ahead and do that second. And then Phone 7 is about to come out. So let's do that third. Other people will say, let's start with Phone 7 because this is, we are server light people. So that mm. would be easier for us. And then once we finish the architecture and know what we're doing, let's go ahead and take that stuff to iPhone or Android running Java or Objective-C. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. So we love Objective-C because we charge per hour. <laughs> <laughs> Not per line of code. <laughs> well, and, and I was thinking in terms of what's the, you know, are you getting sufficient cost benefit for that many different devices? Like, WinPhone 7 has got a big hill to climb. No two ways about it. But I think they've lowered the bar on the development effort dramatically. Mm -hmm. That's going to be able to, they're going to be able to start at a lower point and, and be pretty successful. Everywhere time we go looking for WinPhone 7 developers, they're pretty happy. In fact, more, the more a guy knows about building phone apps, the more he seems to like Phone 7 about it. What worries me is that the price of commercial mobile apps are in the $1 to $5 range, maybe 10 
And I think that consumer pricing sentiment affects the budgets for business mobile devices. Really? Uh, yes, I see. absolutely. The kinds of budgets we're seeing, given the amount of work it really takes to pull one of these things off, Mm. Uh, there's there's a mismatch there. The 99 cent app could undermine a development team trying to get absolutely. budget to build an app. I disagree with that. I don't know. And I either. disagree with that if I am a bank or I am a large enterprise and I have a website and the website is an extension of my brand and mm -hmm. it's an application. Customers are now demanding that instead of me using my online banking, I want to do it on my iPhone or right. soon to be on your Android and Windows Phone 7 as well. So I, I actually don't necessarily agree that the pricing is a problem insofar as you're building an application that's for an enterprise, for a consumer application. Because those enterprise yeah, apps, let's face it, they should be free. I mean, the, well, know, we're not, you're going to be charged for online Yeah, we're not banking, talking yeah. about building yeah, business true. apps that we're going to sell in the marketplace, really. I mean, and it's just anecdotal. I mean, I hope this is not true. I hope they do consider it the same it's the same complexity, not only as web, but multiplied times three or four with all the different mobile well, there, platforms. There's two apps here. There is the consumer apps and there is the enterprise apps. Right. They're very different things. Mm. So the, the consumer apps, which is actually even Microsoft wants to get into that because iPhone and Android are very successful. And they said the first version is going to be straight consumer. These are for the 16 and 17-year-old kids at college. Yeah, that's kind of weird, time. isn't it? Yeah, Why? it's weird for us because we want to actually sell an application sort of a light yeah. on the phone and charge a customer like a bank or whatever, a lot mm. of money for it. And, you know, we cannot do, you know what, we're going to do a new Twitter for you and you're going to pay, pay us like $50,000 for that. Like, no, it's yeah. not going to happen, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, <laughs> no right. way. So the idea is to actually understand that there's two different things. Even Microsoft is saying the Windows Phone 7 first release is for the consumer. Mm. For people like us, we get a lot of calls from enterprise that want to go there still. Right. And it's much easier to do that for the Phone 7 than all the others. So that's important. But the consumer wants their online banking yeah. on their Windows Phone 7 or their iPhone yeah. or their Android. Maybe yeah. there's no difference between consumer and enterprise in the sense that, because I don't know if companies buy cell phones for their employees anymore. It used to be I, th I think that did happen when they're more rare, but now it's like you have all this stuff, so what's the lowest common denominator? Maybe it's HTML5 for mobile, or just HTML for mobile, and try to do something instead of native, I don't know. I still see a fair number of organizations providing the cellular device to their, to their employee, and, and they end up carrying two, because they have their own and they have another mm -hmm. device. Uh, and that was certainly more prevalent in the BlackBerry era, which seems to have already, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you guys keep talking about iPhone, Android, WinPhone 7, and BlackBerry doesn't enter into that conversation. Mm. It really doesn't. As a, as a market share for mobile browsing, it's fairly low. But, in the, but specifically in the business side. They, but yeah, that, for business that, apps, yeah. They are the biggest, till now. But I think Microsoft is the one headed to actually take the BlackBerry market for the enterprise, not the iPhone and not the Android. I think the future, as, we don't know how long is it going to take, but, but I think the I Phone mean, 7 will take that. But Scott, you said yourself that people get used to their keystrokes and their devices and their, their things, and they, they don't give them up easily. Well, and in the mobile space, and here's the deal, I've got um, content that's a DRM, uh, that I purchased and applications that I purchased for the iPhone and iPad. So giving up that library of that that, that self yeah. cost is, would be yeah. very hard for me to move to another platform personally. Mm -hmm. for business would be different. It is remarkable how we get caught by that. I talked to a fellow who has an iPhone who accidentally bought TomTom Tom Navigation for sixty dollars. Yeah. Has never used it. But won't give up his iPhone because he bought that app, and by uh -huh. golly, he's not going to waste it, even though he's not using it. Yeah. 
that's going to happen. There's this, there's this sunk, you know, I always look at it as a sunk cost. It's like, you've already spent that money. It's not coming back. So let's move on to the next thing. But I apparently am an anomaly for thinking that way. It doesn't hurt that the apps are 99 cents either. You yeah. Know, so you can. <laughs> I think there was a great oatmeal on this where we dropped a thousand bucks on the phone without even blinking, but we struggle over spending a dollar on an app. Yeah, that's true. We got a question from the audience. Hey, guys, just. Um Question, you were talking about apps, you know, like separating, and the example for online banking was an excellent one. Um, I would love to hear what do you think, if it makes sense, let's say economically, I mean, you invest a lot in an app for an iPhone than for Android, right? So it costs you a lot of development hours. So do you think business will accept this? Um, this cost, which is huge when they already have a platform, the web one. So you have the online banking, which is, let's say, for all the phones, not as good, but it's a general one. And then you're going to spend more money in an iPhone app, and then you're going to spend more money on, a, which is free, actually, yeah, yeah. because people expect this. I don't think they're ready for it. It's, so, this, the application market for mobile has only been out for two years. And I, so in terms of like just catching up with mobile strategy, I think... You don't think the enterprise is ready for it? Yeah. They no. don't really I, I, they're going to be shocked. I mean, it, because it is three completely different worlds. And it's going to force us to get very smart or to settle for like either you go a route where you have three different teams, one for Java, one Objective-C, one Silverlight. And you, have, and you have designers that specialize in each because the pivot and panorama controls, which are such an important paradigm and content and typography for Windows Phone 7, it's a completely different world for... And that's I think a lot to comes, learn. I think it all comes down to demand. To answer your question, I think that uh, the consumers demand a special app. Even though they can access the web on the iPhone and web, the websites will actually change because they notice that you have an iPhone and they they have a special interface that's easier to use on an iPhone. Yeah. But still, people will go and demand an app. Yeah, native the question app. will be, from a bank's perspective, how many new customers am I winning because I have the iPhone app? Mm -hmm. I can answer that question and tell you that I work with a bank in the United States called the Chase Bank, and they created an iPhone app that will allow you to use the camera to take a snapshot of a check that, you, that was paid to you, and it will deposit the check into your account. You don't have to go to the bank with your Whoa. iPhone. You can do that. That's they cool. signed 200,000 people scary. the first week that they left their banks just because they can do that. Wow. So think about that. Think if the app is productive enough for you, you can put features in it that will actually move you to this app. So it's a demand, what yeah, the you, consumer wants to do. That was very clever of Chase, to think of that, because that's the one thing you couldn't do with a web app. You're now wow. using the phone mm. to save people real effort. Wow, that's an awesome case. Yeah, that's awesome great. Feature. Actually, if you talk to me later on, I'll show you how to actually create checks in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Wired Magazine actually ran a front page story in the July issue, I believe it was, called The Web is Dead. Hmm. Meaning is that we're interacting with the internet using mostly applications or on our Kindles by downloading books. But I think there was a reprint from 1997 in Wired Magazine. <laughs> they said the web <laughs> the was dead back in 1997. No, sorry. I think I said the mainframe was dead. Back. Yeah. So, so what happens is I actually firmly believe that people are going to demand that experience. And if you're not there, it's like not having a website at circa 2003. Mm -hmm. So uh, while I think there will be sticker shock, as Scott said, you know, Chase Manhattan Bank might have had sticker shock. But they're also going to start saying, hey, we're the, the very creative ones will say, we're going to a new paradigm, and let's use this new paradigm 
to our advantage, hence getting something like, you know, being able to take the photo of the check. Just like when we moved to the web from paper reporting, I remember telling customers 10 years ago, you know, you don't need a detail report. You can right. just click on this hyperlink and be brought automatically to it. And then it took them a while to figure that out, but once they did, they demanded it and wanted it. So it's going to be the same thing. At Franklin Snet, I had a sales manager who insisted on printing everything out mm. uh, websites, emails, and, and then would just put it in a pile. Yeah. Why, why did you do that? You know? The pile of dead tree. Yeah. <laughs> just wanted to generate paper. It's just a habit. I can't think of a single report. No, there is one report we do use at Vertigo. It's our utilization map of people over time. And like vacations That's still in project. paper. Yeah, it is still in paper because we collaborate around it. Right. There's a Telerik product that can help you with that oh, called Team Pulse. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> What's it called? Team, Team Pulse. Okay. But you think a with a couple of surfaces lying around your office. It's low DPI. Yeah, the problem is it's low DPI. It's only 1024, 768. And the amount of DPI effective information per inch that I get on paper. We print it on like a wide format paper as well because right. a lot of people, a lot of time. And also, when you collaborate around a surface, one of the weaknesses, you really have to think about how you deal with text because yeah. you can only view it text one way. Text started directional. Yeah, so we've thought about it and then we gave up. <laughs> it's, it's, not tri- <laughs> it's not a trivial problem. It's interesting that it's a tougher problem than you think. Yeah. But it, what's interesting is this one paper report in your whole company. One page, one report every Monday morning by about 11, 11 o'clock. And that's how we forecast. And only 15, 16 years ago when I entered the industry on Wall Street, we would have batches to produce paper reports that ran for a weekend. Yeah. Right? So every Monday morning, the dot yeah. matrix printers would have to have more ink put into mm-hmm. it because they were running from Saturday morning right? with mountains wow. of reports. Right? So here's, here's a question for each of you. So I'm a developer listening to this. Maybe I've been listening to dot rocks for a while. Maybe I'm sort of an intermediate to professional developer. And... Um, I want to know how to make myself more valuable in the future mm, as a developer. Yeah. There's so many things to learn, so much to talk about. What uh, what skills do you think? I, I mean, you hire developers, all of you, so... Social skills are a plus. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's, let's stay realistic here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you tough questions to answer because I have a flight on Thursday. But, uh... Deodorant? <laughs> the, the answer is the same as it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You learn the core programming skills. You learn your core algorithms. You learn your design patterns. And then the technology, I always say, I want to hire a computer programmer first, a language and platform specialist second. And so I really think it's if you keep yourself flexible, that's how you're going to be the most So be a generalist. Not necessarily be a generalist. Understand, you know, core fundamental technology, mm-hmm. you know, understand, you know, how to do memory management, understand how algorithms work, understand design patterns. If you understand that, then you can start diving deep into the technology that's applicable for the project you're on. Maybe it's not a technology, maybe it's a talent that could be fostered. I mean, what do you look for yeah. talent-wise think, in, a, in a software Scott developer? Scott mentioned this creative developer, that there's now a value to someone who has that's, some aesthetic sense. That would be a role. The talent might be... Um, there, there's something... I watched this uh, this this presentation on RSA Animate. Have anyone heard of RSA Animate? RSAanimate.org. They are fascinating. What it is? It's they take a RSA is an organization that they'll, they'll take a speech that's given on. For instance, there's one on education, and then the person's speaking. But weeks later, someone unbeknownst to the speaker, or maybe they do know now, but they will go and articulate the speech 
with graphics and color and text, and it is beautiful. And Usually yet, on a whiteboard. On a whiteboard, and huh? the camera tracks it. I'm not it sure is, what you mean, articulate with, with graphics. Well, imagine as we're talking later, like a month from now, someone animates our presentation, but not animate like characters, but um, like write words and concepts and boxes and arrows and flowcharts. And it's stunning. Now, it's, it's not probably not done in real time. Now, button. that was kind of an aside, but the thing, uh, th th there was a talk about the oh, future of education and how education today is done based on an industrial paradigm of mass production. Like, uh, we, the product that our education delivers is batch oriented. It's batched by your age. And it's, it's, a, it's a manufactured process. I mean, it's going deep in. But anyway, the skill he talks about for the future is what he calls divergent thinking. It's nonlinear thinking. He's coming up with multiple answers for a solution. He talks about um, like giving, a, giving a, a question like, how many uses for a paperclip can you come up with? Mm. And say so most people can come up with 10 to 15. But some people can come up with 200. And we call it thinking outside of the box. Right. But there's a, th a class of thinking called divergent thinking. That's a great skill to look for. Because our world moves so quickly with Moore's Law and with, with battery technology and with, with advances in just cognitive science and, and computing, how we deal with devices, you need skills that keep you flexible and agile and not stuck on just one solution. You have to... So there's a there's hope for the person who calls himself the idea guy or Absolutely. the idea person. That's what business businesses pay for innovation. Yeah. The one thing I really feel bad for programmers these days is that there is not enough time during the day to no. learn everything about programming. I remember um, when I started 20 years ago, we used to write C, assembly, uh, C++, yeah. and I moved to Delphi. Then, mm. And right now you have to learn... Uh, Silver Light, WCF, WPF, W, anything, and all these things, and database, and whatever, and then nobody have the time to actually, so you have so many holes in your knowledge. Nobody, yeah. the new guys, with all due respect, don't know how the CPU works, how you move things on the stack, how things move in the heap, how do you do all that stuff? Well, if it doesn't work, somebody else needs to come and fix that bug for you, because you have no idea what's going on. You don't have the time to go into the debugger. So there is whole, and there is not time during the day to be able to get the entire no. perspective on how the thing, the whole thing works. Mm. So my bets would be on mobile and HTML5 right now. Mm. HTML5 only in the sense that there are techniques you can use today, and it opens up. What you'll find is it includes JavaScript, the new techniques around JavaScript. Processing is a mm -hmm. beautiful language for data visualization, and now you can use processing for Canvas. And I'll talk about that in my. HTML5 talk tomorrow, which doesn't work on radio, does it? Mm, no, no. Um, <laughs> the guy listening to this six months from now yeah, is like, happy oh, with you now. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Uh, but CSS3, uh, I mean, on the web, the future, the, the, the programming paradigm is still server-side. You still have server-side, but the client-side work is JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So you've got to go learn jQuery and all these other techniques. That'll keep you busy. And then you've got to pick a mobile platform. So you're going to probably pick the one that you have so you can actually develop on it and show off. But... But man, it's just, it doesn't end. And this would be a different conversation a year from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if Kinect takes off like a gunshot and right. the SDK comes out for it and it's all about gesture, mm -hmm. we'll be pitching a whole different story. Yeah. Or I something can't else. Wait. I, I honestly think that's changing big time. Stay what, flexible, uh, stay loose. Yeah, don't think you know what's, where it's actually going to go. 
Uh, Lino, you mentioned this briefly, and I, I didn't want to let this get away, that you're actually building on the MonoTouch platform for your yeah, web apps? We, we use MonoTouch and MonoDroid as well. Which MonoDroid. Is MonoDroid is not out yet. Uh, MonoDroid will be out uh, soon. Uh, if you're listening to this, uh, Miguel, don't be upset <laughs> with me. <laughs> um, but I, I'm sure you, uh, it's leaked out. But the site, is. the site is out. The site, you can actually download uh, MonoDroid. You can write C-sharp code to compile for the iPad, iPhone, and also you can write C-sharp code to compile for the Android. So it makes it much much easier entry for C-sharp and .NET programmers to develop for the iPhone and for the Android platform as well. But how much code was actually common between the two projects then, between Touch and I mean, it's C-sharp. I mean, there is some specific libraries in both of them. Um, for the UI the, elements. The UI. I mean, yeah, that's, a, model. that's the main question that I get. I did the talk at the Silicon Valley Code Camp last week as well, mm -hmm. and I got 10 questions identical. How can I write one code? that will run my application on the iPhone, Android, and Windows Phone 7. And the answer to that, you do not want to do that. That's yeah. a bad thing. That's yeah. not a good thing. The thing is that each one of these platforms have their own user yeah. interface guidelines. Mm. And if you're going to try to write one shoe fits all, it will not look good, and the others will not respect it. <laughs> so mm, you right. cannot write a, a panorama control for the iPhone. <laughs> Mr. Steve Jobs is not going to approve it. <laughs> All right. And when you write code in the morning uh, for iPhone, for instance, you have to be wearing a black shirt. <laughs> when you move to uh, Phone Seven, you put a red shirt for Scott. The Gattler. beret. Like, nice. But yeah. what about Android? Just no shirt. Android, you have to be green or naked. <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> but try to get out of your head the idea that I want to write yeah. it once and run it on all those. That's not the way it's going to work. Maybe the algorithms and the libraries for class time, yes, maybe you can do that with MonoDroid. Yeah. But and it actually creates strong incentive to push as much of the app cloud. into the cloud or yes. off the phone exactly. as possible. So Services cloud, that. yes. Be very service This is back to the future again, because just like with Carl's question is what technology should you learn? I said it's the same answer as was 10 years ago. 20 years ago, we had these exact same questions. And then Java comes out and says, you know, write once, run many. And we mm -hmm. always the joke in the industry, write once, debug everywhere. Right? <laughs> uh, and not because, not because Java was bad technology, but because of exactly what you just described. Maybe there's right. something to be said instead of like, what should you, maybe what you research is the 60 years of computing history. I mean, wouldn't that be interesting mm. to really have, try to have an understanding and appreciation for well, what we keep going through. But if, are you going to hire somebody who's great no. on history and can't write code to Probably say they're not? Own? But you know, the interesting thing is Scott and I at dinner the other night, we're talking about a page in Fred Brooks' book, The Mythical Man Month. Mm. Uh, the Cone of Uncertainty, which Scott is now going to show the audience because I drew the Cone of Uncertainty in his, in his notepad. Fred Brooks talked about this, what, the Mythical Month, month is close to 40 years 40 old, years, yeah. Yeah. older than me, and we're still in the agile methodologies, the most up-to-date things, you know, Kanban, Scrum, all of this uses the Cone of Uncertainty. So there is something to be said of looking at, you know, looking back to the future. In that the respect. Cone of Uncertainty. Yeah, I'll explain right. it to you later, Carl. All right, good. <laughs> but, you know, Brooks just put out a new book called The, the Design of the Design. Design of yeah. Design. I'm a little uncertain about the Cone of Uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> It's chocolate dip. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. That's as good as it gets to me. I know. <laughs> hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com.
Scott, while you're digging around in that, you did a, a was it an impromptu survey or, an, uh, or a casual survey of your uh, your staff talking about what designers need to know, what developers know, and what developers need want designers to know? I, I did. So these are like cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> mass hysteria. Um, and I, I asked our developers what if you if you had a magic wish, and all designers would just have that empathy for your plight, um, what would it be? And the, the developers typically say, please um, like run your design by me before you show it to a client because I can help you. Mm. And then in asking the designers, what would you like the developers to do? And the designers say, I want to work more closely with the developers to vet out my concepts. Mm. I'm like, well, why don't you do it? Yeah. <laughs> so they both wanted the same thing. They both thing. want it um, because ultimately, it, we're in, especially in a consulting, well, just what we do, we like to solve problems and we want to see it implemented and we want to make people happy and using our software. And that's a common trait that designers and developers uh, share. And so there's no reason not to do this. I think maybe we're lacking the, the, the terminology or their understanding or the words. When we use words like font, that just that kills designers. Like every time you use the word font, it's like a little part of them dies. <laughs> just use the word typeface and understand what it means. And, and understand the distinction between the two. Typeface yes. or type versus font. Yeah, it's, it's just like hard. Just, it's the same as somebody abusing class and object. Yes, it is. It really is. Um, and I, I did get a lot of response from our designers um, later just asking, like Amy said, she's one of our designers, she says, visual design, quote unquote, making it pretty, isn't something that can just be slapped on at the end. It isn't the icing on the cake. It isn't just a skin. Mm. Visual design decisions affect informational hierarchies and functional design and can profoundly change how a product is used. Involve visual design early. How many times, whenever I, I hear the word skin or theme, I empathize with Amy yep. because it's not something you can just do at the end. It's something that has to be thought of from the beginning to integrate a, a client's brand or to really understand the personas that you're trying to help. You don't just do it at the end, unfortunately. True. You know. Oh, by the way, white space. That was the other thing. Oh, yes. They, they like white space. Let your, let your apps breathe. You know, we have, that's a lot of space up there. Yeah. It's okay to scroll. We're looking at this 20-foot screen. <laughs> Some white space there. I know you heard the word MVVM a lot, and you're probably going to hear, hear it a lot today and tomorrow as well. If you haven't played with that stuff, it's really important. You can start looking into the MVVM models for how the designers and the programmers are going to be working together. Absolutely. Do you remember yeah. actually um, any time you had to deal with a designer before, usually the programmer goes to the designer and like, I'm writing this app. Go give me an image that is 120 by 76. So just don't touch my stuff. Just give me the image and an email, and I'll take care of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Or go do a splash screen, please, and give me that, and I'll take care of it from there. Right. That's the old mentality. Now with the MVVM models, Guess what? We don't actually put the application together as developers. Now my job is to write a model that do, do CRUD operations. I'm going to get customers, update customers, insert customers, do whatever, and make them all available. Now guess who puts the application together? Is the designer. He opens Blend, and on the right side of Blend, you have all these operations, all my functions. They can create whatever they want that looks good to them, but they don't know code. Guess what they do? They drag get customers, and they drop it on the grid. Set customers is on the button, and it works. That's the beauty about having MVVM, is that we can concentrate on the functionality and the WCF and all the stuff that makes them puke. But they will actually concentrate on making the whole thing works. All right? So it's a different shift in mentality. So try to understand that MVVM will actually make them part of the team, major part, because they're going to be putting the whole application together, which is different than what we grew up on mm -hmm. doing development. That's a welcome change once you actually yeah. start using it. A really good designer can get paid as much or more 
than a, a really good developer. <laughs> Isn't that true? I don't want to tell them that. Yeah. But it is true. Actually, uh, QA people make the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that's very a joke. difficult to have a that, good designer. A so, it's, but seriously, worth it. yeah, a good, a really good designer is worth their weight. Absolutely. But it's all, you know, it's the same effect. If we talk about really good developers aren't twice as good as a mediocre developer, ten times, ten times, a hundred times better. I think you see the same thing in design. The very best design guys hmm. are extraordinarily productive. Is is that that same sort of gap? But they, they may seem to be more related than we want to admit. In, that, in those sorts of behaviors. Indeed. And a well-designed app will be easier to implement, especially if it's based on like a grid or a consistent typeface. Mm -hmm. You found something? Well, what there's a site. Um, there's a site of, I could show you guys, but it's a site called, um, it's called Good Something Design Advice. Right. And the word something, you're going to have to stick in a, a gerund of your choice that begins with the letter <laughs> F. But it's good something design advice. Yeah. And it's really good. Just like little pithy. I can show you guys. I don't know if you can see this, but um, this is probably not appropriate. Yeah, it's yeah. not appropriate. What's wrong okay. with this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but design, designers have a sense of humor. And, and by the way, no. designers love, I'll tell you, designers love to talk about design. And they put their design icons on a pedestal. And they have their heroes in the industry. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of sites that collect articles about the top 10 things you should know about design. Mm. And just again, you know, we talk about patterns. They're talking about you know, the drop shadows, are, which by the way are very important. It turns out. Rounded rectangles, drop shadow, and blur. With those three concepts and maybe a mm. gradient, you can build anything. Mm -hmm. You can design almost anything. It's great. The building blocks. They really design. are. They show up everywhere. Yeah. The uh, you were talking a little bit about um, mono touch and that you that you use that uh, for anyone who has never used mono before, but we're C sharp developers. How much pain are we in for? No, not at all. It's actually a lot of fun if you're familiar with C sharp and you want to actually uh, build applications for the iPhone or for Android coming. Do you, do the you build in Visual Studio just yeah. like no. you normally uh, no. do? No. Anything that has to do with Apple, you have to be wearing black and you have to be using an Apple <laughs> machine. All right. Yeah, you have Whether to have a beret. Or not. So you use an ID, it's a free ID called Mono Develop. Okay. And you add the monotouch in there, in C Sharp, and it works great. But for Monodroid, you can use Visual Studio 2010 to do that. Really? Yeah, so it works pretty well. So mono develop is what you need for... Yeah, for the iPhone and yeah. for the iPad. Does okay. it come with the black shirt? It comes one? with the black shirt. But yes. tell me about it a little bit. I mean, is there stuff... Does it have IntelliSense? Does, is all this great yeah. stuff that we... All the stuff is built in, and you get all the different features that you expect from Visual Studio. I mean, Visual Studio is still a little bit more elegant. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a lot more features because they have, like, two million oh, people working product. on it, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but definitely, mono develop is actually a pretty good ID. It's a free ID, and it's available on, on Mac. Um, and you don't you don't have things like the dispose pattern though, do you? Because you, there's, there's how, no how does memory management work? There's no generics. Yeah, for for iPhone, Steve Jobs did not want the memory management all that stuff. So it's actually there is no reflection. Actually, there is well, <laughs> well, there's another talk. But so uh, now we're getting into the reflection. Pain. Yeah, so there, no, is, no reflection. there is no reflection, but there is some reflection. But yeah. there is no memory management. But there is a little bit of memory <laughs> management. Things that will just get you back to be approved on the App Store kind no, of thing. So. No link. Actually, no, there is Link. There you, is Link. Yeah, you, can you can use, use Link, link on an iPhone You can app. use it, yes. Link, we use no Link. Generics. We use Link, yes. Uh, there is a way, actually, they have a very good compiler guide <laughs> that will actually uh, show you how to use Link without actually using generics. It works fine. Wow. That's weird. <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole couple of shows there, I That's think. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. How much time yeah. do we have now? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, and so, so, but you find it easy enough to work around these... Uh, <laughs> 
you know, these limitations. Yeah, the, the one thing that actually hurt us the most with Monotouch, to be honest with you, when, when we woke up in the morning one day and we, there was an article by Steve yeah. Jobs yeah, that right. says, like, if it's not written by Objective-C and it yeah. does not uh, uh, approve by this and that and it has to be done because they were going after Adobe and all that stuff. Yeah. So Monotouch suffered because of it. But uh, again, uh, they've changed few, their minds now. A few months later, Steve uh, I think the woke up on the left side of the bed this time yeah, and he that. said, it's okay now to do that stuff. So uh, I think next week he might wake up on the other side. That was a dark day. I mean, it really showed yeah. Apple's dark side. And someone made the analysis. So it's called Section 3.3.1 of 3 the 3.2 yeah. of the. Um, the developer, kind of the terms and conditions, and it said that you you have to you can't use third-party libraries or APIs. Um, you have to do it all Objective C. And someone said that's akin to saying if you want to put your bands, if you want to put, publish your album on iTunes, you have to use GarageBand to yeah. create it. And it's like, wow, yeah, that's a bad thing. Yeah. So they relented, um, I, I'm sure. And then, and, it, and near as I can tell, they never actually pulled an app because it was built with right. Monotouch or anything right. else. Yeah. No. You're, Monotouch was correct. always approved even after that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just they reserved the right. So that if I, can I explain why that decision sure. was made? That decision was made, folks, because Apple, this is the way Apple Flash. thinks, and they have a point behind that. Mm -hmm. If Flash from Adobe comes out for the iPhone and the iPad, and it makes it much easier than Objective-C, nobody's gonna be those Objective-C. Again, that's not a problem. But if people start building application in Flash, and it's easy to do that, and then two years from now, uh, iPhone 5 or iPhone 6 comes out, people are gonna say like, when is Flash coming out because I wanna upgrade. If Adobe says, uh, not for a while, uh, that means that Adobe can actually take the platform hostage. Nobody's mm -hmm. going to upgrade to 6.0 in a couple right. of years until Adobe comes up with the Flash. And Apple has no business with that. They don't want actually anybody to keep their platform hostage. So they want you to go straight to them. Don't count on another framework to build your application on. And that's the reason why Apple does not want somebody to take the application mm. framework hostage. But, but don't you think competition now from both Android and now Windows Phone 7 are actually gonna change that behavior? And Very actually much. the competition in the marketplace? Very much so. Mm. And uh, you can see it happening right now. They, they actually changed their mind and now it's open forever because you cannot keep it. I mean, with all due respects, I know this is um, gonna go live and everything, but uh, Steve Jobs is probably making the same exact mistake he made almost 20 years ago when he lost the, the war against PCs. And mm -hmm. hopefully he will not do that mistake again and open it up to the ecosystem much better than he's doing right now. I think they're doing well right now. Yeah, yeah. that's the issue. That when you're making you're right. so much money, nobody can tell you're doing something wrong. But they are actually doing something wrong. So. <laughs> Well, uh, I think we're, we got about 15 more minutes live here, but uh, it's about the end of our show uh, for publication. So I can uh, stand up, I just realized. Yeah. Yes, you can. I'm just, I'm just kind now of that the show's of over, Scott, it's great that you're wandering. Because <laughs> I've got a wireless mic, so I can walk around. <laughs> show just getting antsy. We hit, all have hit one. Hit me, baby, one more time. <laughs> I have a wireless mic, too. Let's go, <laughs> Let's go walk around. <laughs> Welcome to Five Geeks Walking Around. There you go. <laughs> I'm just going to sit over here. We should do this in the coffee shop. We should film a show and uh, record a show in a pizzeria. <laughs> Wait a minute, we did. Wait a minute, we did. Uh, I'd like to uh, give a big round of applause for Scott Stanfield, Stephen Forte, Lino Tadros. Thank you very much for coming. We'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. 
.NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.